Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I invite you this morning to turn with me in the Word of God in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles, chapter 20, verse 15, as we speak on the subject, the battle is the Lord's. And the Levite said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Last Lord's Day morning, I preached on the imperative, Fear not, probably one of the most frequently used commands in all of Scripture, Fear not. Fear controls so much of our lives. There's not a person here who's unaffected by it. And this morning, I want us to consider a powerful example of the reason that we have to fear not. Here in the story of King Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Now, it was approximately 850 years before Christ, and Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah. He's one of the half dozen or so godly kings of Judah. You may remember that the kings of Israel had no one who did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. All of their leaders walked in the ways of Ahab and Jeroboam who caused Israel to sin. They were all wicked kings. But the kingdom of Judah, on the contrary, had a half dozen or so kings that did that which was right. In the sight of the Lord, Jehoshaphat was one of those kings. And the character of his reign is summarized in chapter 17 of Second Chronicles, verse 6, by the expression, his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. Now, it's one thing to have your heart lifted up in pride, like Nebuchadnezzar's was, but it's wonderful when your heart is lifted up in the ways of the Lord. And that's the case with King Jehoshaphat. But on this occasion, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, it was a time of crisis. Listen to verses 1 and 2. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon, and with them other besides the Ammonites, came against Jehoshaphat to battle. So the neighboring countries are allying themselves together and coming to Jerusalem to lay siege against Jehoshaphat and his kingdom. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side of Syria. And behold, they be in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Now I dare say that trouble comes out of the blue sometimes. The prophet said, suddenly are my tents spoiled and my curtains in a moment. Your life can be going along with relative ease and comfort. And then suddenly a phone call, some accident that you didn't anticipate. Some problem arises that suddenly you're in a time of crisis. Well, Jehoshaphat and his kingdom are prospering. In fact, his heart is lifted up in the ways of the Lord. 
and he's leading the nation in various reforms and revivals. But suddenly he gets the news that an enemy army is approaching. Now this enemy army was comprised of the Moabites and the Ammonites and people from Mount Seir, that is, some descendants of Esau, the Edomites. So they formed a coalition, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now you remember the Moabites and the Ammonites are descendants of Lot. In the history of the Old Testament, you may remember that Abraham's nephew Lot committed the sin of incest, and the two children that were born were named Moab and Ammon. So they're kin to the Jews, they're kin to Abraham, but yet they are perennial enemies of the Israelites. So now the Moabites and the Ammonites decide that they're going to attack King Jehoshaphat, and the people of Mount Seir say, we'll join you. So you've got three different countries, basically, that have allied their forces, and they're coming against Jerusalem, and they're in En Gedi, says the text. Now, En Gedi was a little community on the southern end of the Dead Sea, and it's a short distance to Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat receives the news that we better prepare for battle. Now, you have to understand that Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah was not a large army. The population was not tremendous. They were relatively weak and powerless in and of themselves, not impressive at all. So when Jehoshaphat gets this news, he is understandably, it says, afraid. And Jehoshaphat feared, it says. It was a time of crisis. It was also a time for prayer. For notice the third verse, Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Now you would think that they need to spend every spare moment assembling their army, gathering a battle plan, trying to implement that plan by positioning the troops where they want them and resisting this attack that is coming upon them. But the first thing that they do is they go to the house of God and have a prayer meeting. Jehoshaphat set himself. That means he determined to seek the Lord. And the people came together to ask help from the Lord. Now I love that word help. You know, we need help in our lives. There's not a one of us who is self-sufficient and capable of handling life's issues on our own. We need help. We need each other's help. How wonderful it is to have help from one another. But I dare say the person that we need the most is the Lord. We need help from God. You say, well, how do I get help from the Lord? Well, you've got to send an SOS signal toward heaven. And you do that through prayer. You say, help, Lord. So the nation has gathered together under the king's direction. Isn't it wonderful to have a righteous and godly king who fears God, and he says, we need to ask God to help us, and the people respond. And it says they gather together to ask help for the Lord. I want to say that prayer is often born from a sense of deep and desperate need in our lives. Psalm 50 verse 15 says, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee. What a wonderful promise that is. God invites us to pray in a time of trouble. I wonder where this message finds you today. Are you in a time of crisis? Perhaps it's a health crisis. Perhaps it's a financial struggle or the loss of a job. Maybe it's a relational stress. 
Whatever your time of trouble might be, God invites you to call upon him. Call upon me in the time of trouble and I will deliver thee. What a wonderful soul-cheering promise that is. It's a time of crisis, but it's a time for prayer. And prayer that is born from a sense of your own desperate need has a direct hotline to the throne of God in heaven. I want you to notice his wonderful prayer now in verses 3 to 13 of 2 Chronicles 20. First of all, Jehoshaphat's prayer affirms the sovereignty of God. Verse 5 says, And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. Now remember, Solomon has built his temple in Jerusalem. It's a place for religious worship. The king has gone there now and called the nation to assemble. I want all of you to come so we can storm the gates of heaven together. And the king leads the prayer meeting. He stood in the congregation of Judah. Notice he's identifying himself with the people. He's saying, we're all on the same plane. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers. Now watch this affirmation of divine sovereignty. O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Now you say, well, God already knew this. And no doubt Jehoshaphat knew it. But I'll tell you, it helps to build faith in others by just repeating who your God is. Art not thou God in heaven? You see, the God to whom we pray is the sovereign God of heaven and earth, who rules, as the king says, over all the kingdoms of the heathen. Did you know that above every earthly prime minister and president and king is the king of kings, who is the ultimate authority, the sovereign of heaven and earth? Sovereignty simply speaks of God's absolute power and authority. There's none above him. The buck stops here. Nothing is too hard for him. He does his will. He's God. <laughs> and he's in charge. That's the idea. And I love how Jehoshaphat begins his prayer as they're in a time of great crisis by saying, Lord, you're the God of heaven and earth. You rule over all the kingdoms of men. And in thine hand there is power and might so that no one is able to withstand thee. God has no rivals. He's beyond comparison. He has the power and the might so that no rival can effectively challenge him. None is able to withstand thee. And then notice not only does he affirm God's sovereignty, but he affirms God's covenant faithfulness. Verse 7, art not thou our God? Now, when you read that collective pronoun our in the Bible, that is covenant language. In other words, God has claimed us as his people. Jehoshaphat said, Lord, you're our God. And we know, don't we, that God is our God this morning, not because we chose him as ours. We've elected you, Lord, to be our God. No, it's because he chose us to be his people. I will be their God and they shall be my people. God took the initiative and that's what grace is all about. So Jehoshaphat not only says, Lord, you're the king, and no man can resist you, but he says, Lord, you're our God in covenant arrangement, who's faithful to us. Listen to the reference to the faithfulness of God here as he describes it. Who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gavest it to the seed of Abraham, thy friend forever. Now, God, we're here because 
you drove out the native inhabitants and you replaced them with your covenant people. We know that's how Israel came to the point that they possessed the land of Canaan. God gave it to them. The Canaanites, because they were such vile idolaters, were thrust out before them and God gave the Holy Land, the Bible lands, to Abraham and his seed forever. And he's faithful. He says, God, you're our God. You've given us this land. We're appealing to you on the basis of your covenant faithfulness. And notice he also mentions God's concern for the glory of his own name, verses 8 through 10. And your people dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary. Now he's standing in Solomon's temple. And the reference to a sanctuary is a holy place that is devoted or consecrated to the worship of God. Lord, your people have dwelt in the land you've given them, and there's this house, this sanctuary that has been built for thy name. Now, anytime you find references in the Bible to God's name, that speaks of God's glory, his concern for the glory of his own character, his own name. You know, God is very protective of his reputation. You say, well, what right does he have? That doesn't strike me as something positive, Brother Mike. Well, it's not for us because we really don't have a right to be so touchy about our own honor. But God is God. And everything that he does is done with a supreme self-regard to the glory of his own name. Did you know that's why he made the universe in the first place? For thy pleasure, says Revelation 4.11, they are and were created. Proverbs 16.3 says, The Lord has made all things for himself. Even the wicked for the day of evil, God made it for his own glory. Now sometimes modern man starts thinking that God is in heaven for us. Lord, I'll call on you when I need you, but until then don't bother me. You know, like a spare tire. We don't think about it until we need it, you know, and then we hope that it has air in it, right? And that's the way a lot of people treat God, like an old spare tire. But God's not in heaven for, for you or for me. We're here for him. We're here to glorify him. We were made to glorify God. The purpose of your existence and my life as well is to give honor and praise to the name of God. And notice now Jehoshaphat says, Lord, this sanctuary is devoted to the glory of your name. Verse 9, and if when evil cometh upon us, when they built this sanctuary, this was the prayer Solomon prayed, if when evil cometh upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, and we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house. Notice the repetition, for thy name is here. This place is devoted to your glory, and we cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou hast promised to hear and to help. He's appealing to God's concern for the glory of his own name. And the promise that God, because he will do it for his own holy name's sake, you know, there's a verse in Ezekiel 36 that says, not for thy sake do I do this, but for my holy name's sake. God says, I'm going to bring you back from Babylon, not because you deserve it, but because of my supreme self-regard for the glory of my own name. And by the way, that's the ultimate motivation in God's plan of salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, three times, says that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, he predestinated us to be conformed to the adoption of children. He redeemed us by the precious blood of Christ. He's forgiven our sins. And he says all of this three times is to the praise of the glory of his grace. He did it, not just because we needed it, 
We did need it, but he did it primarily so that we would respond by giving glory to him for his grace. And by the way, that's what we're doing here this morning, right? We're here to give him the glory that is due to his name. So Jehoshaphat prays that God would work. Notice in verses 10 through 12 now, he says, And now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Now, he's reflecting on Israel's history. You remember when the Jews, the Hebrews, were delivered from Egyptian bondage and Moses led them out and they crossed the Red Sea? As they were making their way to the promised land, they passed by the Moabites and the Ammonites. And as they passed by... They asked that the children of Moab and Ammon would allow them some bread. You know, these are my cousins, so uh, you know we're out here. We're would you please help us a little on, along the way? We'll be forever in your debt. But the children of Moab and Ammon were stingy. In fact, they were rude about it. And Moses and the children of Israel wanted to attack them, but God withheld them. He said, "No, you're not going to attack them." And now Jehoshaphat is reflecting on that. He says, Lord, behold, they're coming at us now to attack us. And they're the ones whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade, verse 10, when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us. (laughs) Now notice after he's rehearsed God's self-revelation in history, that God's a sovereign God, he's the faithful God who's entered into covenant with his people, given us this land forever and we built a sanctuary that's devoted to the glory of his name after Jehoshaphat does that in this prayer he appeals to God's justice for these nations that are now approaching Jerusalem have been on the receiving end of Israel's ancient forbearance and grace and now they're rewarding hostility for kindness and he says Lord behold I say verse 11 how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. Now I'll tell you, it's appropriate to see the injustice of a situation like this and to appeal to a righteous and just God to balance the scales. That's exactly what he's doing. He's saying, Lord, it's not right. We didn't harm them. They didn't help us, and even though it hurt our feelings, we didn't harm them, but now they're turning on us to come and attack us. They're biting the hand that fed them. They're rewarding kindness with hostility. Lord, behold. Lord, look at what's happening. Now, we know God sees everything, but it's not wrong to pray, Lord. Look, look at what we're facing right now. This is right. And Lord, I can't balance the scales of justice, but I trust a God who will make all wrongs right. That's what Jehoshaphat is saying here. Behold how they reward us. And then I want you to notice the 12th verse, which is one of my favorites in all the Bible. Oh, our God. Notice this prayer that Jehoshaphat prays. He assumes a posture of humility and dependence on God. Oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? Notice he leaves vengeance to God. He doesn't take it in his own hands. It's not right what they've done. They've taken the first step and they're coming at us. And Lord, it's not right after how we treated them in the past. It's not right for them to do this. But Lord, would you rectify the injustice on this occasion? And then he says, Lord, wilt thou not judge them? 
And I love this confession. For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither do we know what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. Prayer, my friends, assumes a posture of humility and dependence on God. Notice how Jehoshaphat confesses their weakness and their ignorance. We have no might against this great Lord. We're not able. We don't have the strength. We don't have numerical strength. They have us outnumbered. Three neighboring nations are attacking the little nation of Judah. And Lord, we, we don't have the energy, the strength. We don't have it within ourselves. We have no might. Now, I want to tell you that we're living in a world that loves self-confidence. They want a person to say, I know what to do, and I have the ability to solve the problem. And there's a place for that, no doubt, in public leadership. There's a place for somebody to take the initiative and to show courage. But, you know, in the final analysis, my beloved, I think every one of us would have to say as we think of the burdens and the problems of life, Lord, I, I don't feel like I'm strong enough to I don't have any might against this great problem. Neither do I even know what to do. I don't even know where to start. Lord, I'm weak and I'm ignorant. By the way, that's the posture of humility. Humility is always appropriate for the people of God. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. His followers are those who are ready to acknowledge, Lord, I don't have it all together. Lord, I don't believe my own press clippings. Lord, I'm weak and I'm at a loss for the right way to go to solve this problem. That, my friends, is the right posture for us all to confess our weakness and our ignorance. The Bible teaches that a posture of weakness is actually a position of strength for the child of grace. What about when Paul came to the church at Corinth? Here's Paul's resume when he came to the church at Corinth. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I want to tell you, if you were on a pastor selection committee <laughs> and one of the candidates had given you this resume that I, I really don't know how to do it, I don't feel like I'm capable, I have a lot of self-doubt as far as my own ability is concerned, I wonder if I have the strength, I have the intention, the good intention, but do I have the giftedness, the talents? Do I have the staying power? Do I have the perseverance? I don't in and of myself, I have no might. Paul said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You know, I remember as a boy seeing preachers come before the Lord's people to preach and they'd say, brethren, I really feel to be weak this morning. I need your prayers. And that's not just a formality. I mean, if you've ever stood up here and you've thought that I am responsible for trying to explain this book in a way that people can understand and that it will mean something in their lives, you know that that is a foreboding responsibility. That's an intimidating task. Especially when you think about the fact that you're representing the name of God. You're speaking in his name. So to misrepresent him or to use this platform to promote my own agenda instead of what he teaches is a very dangerous thing. It's a fearful thing to stand in the presence of the Lord. Well, Jehoshaphat says, like Paul did, Lord, I'm before you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Lord, I'm weak. You know, we need to get over ourselves, I think, at times and just fall on our face before God and let the tears roll and pour out our hearts before him and say, Lord, I am weak. 
but thou art strong. Lord, I have no might. This approaching horde of Ammonites and Moabites and Edomites is intimidating. Lord, I don't know what to do. Paul had that attitude as he came to the church at Corinth, but you know, God used him mightily. Paul said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I'll tell you, when we are willing to acknowledge that we're incapable and inadequate in and of ourselves, God is then pleased to show his strength in our weakness. The posture of weakness is actually a position of strength for the child of grace. Do you remember when Abraham thought that he would help the Lord fulfill the promise of a child? Abraham had waited for after God gave him that promise. 25 years had passed, and finally he and Sarah concoct this plan that Abraham's going to take her handmaid, Hagar, He's going to go into her and have the promised child through this Egyptian handmaid. God has said from the very beginning that Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. But Abraham and Sarah hatched this plot to help the Lord out just a little bit. You know, when we start thinking that we can help the Lord out, we're probably on thin ice. And what happened was Ishmael was born and Abraham held the child up before God and said, Oh, that Ishmael might live. Here's your promised seed, Lord. And the Lord said, This is not the heir. But he said, thy wife Sarah shall indeed have a son. And it wasn't until Abraham came to the end of himself. And he said, Lord, I can't do it. I don't know how it's going to be done. It doesn't appear to be possible, but I'm just going to leave it all in your hands. God is pleased to step in then and work with the birth of Isaac, the promised seed. That, my friends, is how God works. You know, if somebody came before our church and said, I think I could really help you folks out. Here at Bethel Church, I mean, I'm pretty wealthy and uh, I'm well known in the community and, and um, you probably need my experience and my persona to build your reputation and to give you an avenue into the community. And I really think I could help you out. Do you think that we would receive that person and say, okay, wonderful. No, I would hope that a wise brother would stand up and say, brother, I'll make a motion we table this for discussion until later. But you know, if he came forward sometime later and said, brethren, I'm weak, I'm hopeless, I don't feel like I have much to offer, but I need to be here. I need the Lord, I need the gospel that you proclaim, I need the love and fellowship of the saints, I'll tell you at that point, we'll say, let's receive him with open arms, wouldn't we? And that's the right attitude for every one of us. Lord, we have no might against this great company. Neither do we know what to do. I'm weak. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. But he said, when he gave that to me, he promised me my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Did you know when we're weak, God then shows his strength. In your weakness, he is strong. I wonder if I speak to anybody today who feels weak, who feels to be powerless, who feels to be clueless as to what to do next to solve a problem in your life. I'm telling you, this is the right attitude. Lord, we can't do it. We can't do it. But our eyes are upon thee. And God is pleased to step in and work in a mighty way when we are totally dependent upon him. So it was a time of crisis and it was a time for prayer. Notice thirdly, it was a time to be still. Verse 14. Then Jehaziel the son of Zechariah, a Levite, stood up 
And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now here's this young Levite. Now, who were the Levites? They were the priests, right? And here's a young man who's listening to Jehoshaphat as he's leading this prayer meeting. And he's prayed about God's sovereignty. He's prayed about God's concern for his own glory. He's prayed about God's covenant faithfulness. He's talked about how Israel's been mistreated for their ancient kindness to the Moabites and Ammonites. Now they're being repaid and rewarded with hostility. And he's applied to God to balance the scales of justice. And finally, he's acknowledged his own weakness and ignorance. And he said, Lord, we're looking to you to help us. Our eyes are upon thee. Suddenly, this young Levite, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he stands up to speak. And he said, hearken ye, all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, be not afraid, nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, be not dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with thee. It's a time of crisis. It's a time for prayer. This young Levite says it's a time to be still. Now in this speech he gives, notice two historical references that each of these Jewish people would have been familiar with. First of all, he reminds them of the familiar account of David's victory over Goliath. Now, I'm sure every one of you know about that. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And you say, well, I didn't see David and Goliath mentioned here. In this language, the battle is not yours, but God's. That is a direct quote from 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 47, when David stood before Goliath and he said, All this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And you remember how that happened. When God took over the campaign, it was a categorical victory. Israel. How could a little shepherd lad with five smooth stones from the brook and a slingshot defeat this champion warrior named Goliath? It's impossible. In fact, Goliath was so livid, he was so insulted by the fact they would send a child out after him that he said, it's like you've sent a little child out here to drive a dog away with sticks. You know, get out of here. Am I a dog, he says, that thou sendest this lad before me? Goliath's incense, he says, come here, boy. I'll give your flesh to the fowls of heaven and to the beasts of the field. He said, I'll make short work of you and we'll win the battle. But David says, you come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to thee in the name of the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel who you have defied. And you remember David took a slingshot and put one smooth stone in the pouch and he whirled it around and let it go. And it lodged like a musket ball in Goliath's forehead. And that mighty giant, I'm sure his eyes crossed, fell down flat. Dead as a hammer. I mean, he fell to the ground. Now, could a slingshot, you say, well, man, David was really accurate. Well, indeed, he was skilled. But I'll tell you, there's more to this story 
than appears on the surface. David does not get the credit for this. David is not the victor. God is the victor. The battle is not yours, but God's. The battle is the Lord's. When God fights your battles, my friends, victory is assured. This was a time then to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Not only has he referred to the account of David and Goliath, something that all of the children of Israel there at Jehoshaphat's court that day would have been familiar with, but he reminds them of the amazing story of crossing the Red Sea. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 13, when Moses stilled the people, they were so afraid. Pharaoh and his army were pursuing them from behind. The Red Sea was before them. I mean, that was a formidable body of water. Mountains on either side. Exodus 14, 13, Moses said to the people, fear ye not. Don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will show to you today for the Egyptians whom you've seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Do you remember how that story ended? God separated the Egyptian army from the Israelites by this wall of fire while they crossed on dry ground. And as they came to the other side, the protection was taken away and the Egyptians pursued after them, and when they'd all got down into the bed of the Red Sea, God caused the waters that were standing on heaps to come together again, and it drowned Pharaoh and his 600 chosen chariots in the depths of the sea. Indeed, my friends, all they had to do is be still, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. I want to say that this is no excuse for laziness in our commitment to the Lord. Somebody says, well, the Bible says God will do it. So I'm just going to stand still. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to be passive. No, I would suggest that the bulk of our lives should be characterized by diligence. God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We're to put him first in our lives. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're to study to show ourselves approved. There is work for us to do. There's a duty incumbent upon each of us in serving the Lord. But I dare say, dear friends, that when we face a time of crisis in our lives, it is often very appropriate for us to say, well, Lord, I don't know what to do, and would you work for us? And God steps in to show himself strong in the wake of our weakness. God, my beloved, says, stand still and watch me at work. See the salvation of the Lord. And when God works, my beloved, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? Psalmist said it like this, this is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. The battle is the Lord's. It's the same principle. God's going to fight, so you don't need to fight. You just stand still and watch him at work. It's the same principle in Isaiah 30, verse 15, when he says, in quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. You want to be strong? Then just stop talking and trust God. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. Or it's the same principle in Psalm 46, 10, if you please. Be still and know that I am God. My beloved, are you full of anxiety and fretfulness today are you tied in knots on the inside i encourage you just to stop take a deep breath just stand still and remember who your god is and look to him say lord my eyes are upon you i love the way that the old preacher alexander mclaren described 
this thought. He said, may we not take the Levites' message personally in the midst of our many conflicts of life? If we have truly grasped God's hand and we are fighting for what is according to his will, we have a right to feel that the battle is not ours but God's. And to be certain, therefore, that we shall conquer. Mr. McLaren mentions then in his sermon that we're not to assume such a passive role in terms of our clear responsibilities. But then he continues, every man who watches his career will have many times to recognize God's hand, unaided by any act of our own, striking for us and giving us victory. And in the spiritual life, every Christian knows that his best moments have always come from what the Holy Spirit indicts and initiates and what the Holy Spirit does in and through us. Indeed, my friends, when God works, I want to tell you, you can be guaranteed of success. It's a time to be still. For the battle is not yours, but God's. You know, the ultimate application of that is the cross of Calvary. That's a battle that you and I could not have fought. The battle is not yours, but the Lord's. The best thing you can do and I can do is to just be still and trust the merits of his son. Jesus Christ fought the battle on Calvary and he conquered the enemy. He won the battle hands down. And you and I, because of what Christ has done for us, my friends, are on the winning side be at peace, be still, and know that he's God. Stand still and watch the Lord at work. And I'll tell you, he gets the victory every time. And then it was a time not only for prayer and to be still, but it was a time for worship, verse 18. And after this, Levite talks to them. Jehoshaphat, it says, bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Now, they're about to do battle. I mean, this is terrible news. We're being invaded. The enemy is on the march, and we're not ready, and we don't know where to start. And time is of the essence. What should we do? And this Levite stands up and says, God's going to fight for you. You just stand still and watch him at work. And they're saying, Lord, we're looking to you to help us. They're doing the right thing. Casting their eyes heavenward. Notice what happens after this Levite gives his speech. They all fall down before God and start worshiping. Now, you say, I would think they need to be getting their tanks and jeeps and gear together and getting all their weapons and armor strapped on and ready to go to battle, but yet they're still in church. <laughs> what a waste of time. They're praying and no, it's not a waste of time at all because they're looking to the one, the only one who can help them against these impossible odds. What a message of encouragement from this Levite. His confidence in God was infectious. It was contagious. It caught on with the other people. And at this moment, the Levite becomes the commander of the army, giving tactical details about the battle. He said, uh, you go down to against them. They come up by the cliff of Ziz. You shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness. And notice that Jehoshaphat and his captains found such assurance in his message. They responded in grateful worship. I want to tell you the best thing you and I can do in a time of crisis is to turn that crisis into a time for worship. Remember when Job lost everything? It says, then Job rent his mantle and shaved his head and he bowed before God and worshiped. He went to church. Somebody said, I couldn't come to church. I was just too depressed. That's the very moment you need to be at church. You say, I had too many problems in my life. That's when you need to draw nigh to God and call upon him to help you more than any time else, my beloved. It's always a time for worship for the child of grace. It's a time for prayer. It's a time to be still. It's a time for worship. 
And it's a time for faith. Verse 20. And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as Jehoshaphat and his army went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. I ended my sermon last week on the theme, Fear Not, with a reference to Psalm 56, verse 3. What time I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. The answer to fear is faith. Faith in God alleviates and dispels our fears of man and of life. We look to the Lord to help us. Mark eleven twenty two. Jesus says, have faith in God. Notice that's a command. It's an imperative. He's telling us to do something. Have faith. Now you can't have faith unless you've been given the gift of faith first, right? You can't just muster up something that is not in your heart. We know that God gives the gift of faith to every one of his children when they're born again. But after you've been born again, my friends, you need to exercise that faith in God. Remember who your God is. Put your faith, your trust in him. That's what Jehoshaphat says to the people as they're about to go into battle. He says, believe in the Lord, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. Notice both stability and prosperity come from faith in God. How important it is for somebody to stand up and say, brethren, I believe God, that it shall be even as it was told us, like Paul did on that ship in a time of storm. Sirs, I believe God. I trust him. Because that kind of confidence is contagious. It'll spread. You know, discouragement's contagious too. Somebody says, uh, we can't do it. We're just too weak. Remember when the spies came back from looking at the land of Canaan, they said, it's a great place, but we're not able to overcome the giants and the obstacles that are there. It says they discouraged the hearts of the people. That negative message spread like wildfire and everybody else caught the germ of it's impossible. I'm telling you all things are possible with God. And I love a man of faith like Jehoshaphat or like this Levite who will stand forth and say, God, you're sovereign. Our God is invested in the glory of his own name. He's committed to his people in covenant faithfulness. And Lord, we look to you to help us. And then this Levite stands up and says, that's right. Don't be afraid for the battle is the Lord's. You don't even have to fight in this battle. You just stand back and watch God at work because he will work and move on behalf of his people. That's why, my beloved, we need faith. It's a time for faith. And then notice finally, it's a time for rejoicing. Beginning in verse 21, it says, And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord that they should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army. Now, have you ever seen an army like this with a worship team, <laughs> with singers, Levites? I mean, they're not even dressed in armor with weapons. They're dressed in the priest's garb. That's what it says in praise the Lord in the beauty of holiness. They're wearing the priest's clothing. You usually don't wear white linen like a priest would wear in his ceremonial obligations in the tabernacle or temple. You don't usually take that into the fields for battle, do you? You put on, you know, a bulletproof vest and a helmet and a, you get your shield and your spear and your long hobnail shoes. You put on your armor. But in the front of the army, the singers went out singing, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord. <laughs> is laid for your faith in his excellent word. They're singing, lead me safely on, and they're singing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
I love this, singing soldiers. Have you ever seen an army like that? Singing soldiers. I love the words of Psalm 149, verses 5 and 6, where David says, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouths and a two-edged sword in their hands. Here's somebody who's praising and preparing for battle at the same time. That's the singing soldier. You know, you could also remember Nehemiah's workmen who were building at the same time they were preparing for battle. With one hand they held a trowel and with one hand they held a sword. Ready for the enemy to come, but yet they're building. While the enemy is at bay, they're building the wall, but they're ready for battle. Oh, that blend of being willing to fight the Lord's battles, but at the same time continue to worship Him and build His kingdom is what is needed in each of our lives. And notice how this all turns out. And when they began to sing, verse 22, and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, <laughs> utterly to slay and destroy them. Do you know what this means? They turned on each other. Jehoshaphat and his army never lifted a battle cry. The only thing they lifted was praise and thanks to God in their songs. They're going out and they're saying, Lord, you are great. And then the children of Ammon and Moab turn on the people of Mount Seir and they start slaying each other. And by the time that Jehoshaphat and his army reached the battlefield, verse 24 says, when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked and behold, they were dead bodies fallen to the earth and none escaped. By the time they reached the scene, my beloved, the battle was already over for the Lord had fought for them. How similar this is to my experience. How many times I've been crippled with fear and anticipation of a conflict only to discover that the Lord had gone before me and had fought the battle and resolved the crisis. My beloved, that's our trust. We trust a God like that this morning. Verses 26 and 30 says, Then they gathered the spoils from the battle. They were three days gathering all the spoils. <laughs> And on the fourth day, verse 26, they assembled themselves in the valley of Barakah. The word Barakah means blessing. For there they blessed the Lord. They had a worship service there on site. Therefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Blessing, the Valley of Barakah unto this day, the Valley of Blessing. You know, God can turn your valleys into places to bless his name. God can turn your valleys into places of victory. Today, you say, Brother Mike, I've been through some deep, dark valleys, but can't you look back and see that God was with you? And now you can say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name, for He's delivered me time and time again. My beloved, this morning we are all overwhelmed by life's burdens. And we're at a loss regarding the way forward. Lord, I don't know what to do. But with our eyes on the Lord, who fights our battles for us, you and I, too, may discover that the times of greatest crisis in our lives become times for worship, victory, rejoicing, and blessing. What's the key? Verse 12, our eyes are upon thee. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look unto Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Depend on him. Keep your eyes on him. And my beloved, you will learn that in your life, the epitaph of it all will be the battle was the Lord's.